Good morning. Good morning and welcome to chapel. My name is Tamara Shantz, one of the campus pastors here. It's good to see you all back safely from spring break. So this morning we are going to be hearing from President Jim Brenneman. Um, and he is going to be sharing some of his life and faith journey with us as he reflects on growing from a high school dropout to a college president, and specifically exploring a little bit of how we can explore and figure out what God's will for our lives might be. But before we begin our service in singing, um, I invite you to join me in an opening prayer. Um, and as we pray, I also want to note um, two particular tragedies that have happened um, in our community and our world recently that I also would like to include in our opening prayer. Um, first, this past week, a student at one of our sister schools, Bluffton University, um, was killed in a car accident during their break week. Um, so I'm going to lift up that community in prayer and invite you to do so as well. And last night, um, a major earthquake and tsunami also hit uh, Japan. Um, and so I'm, I don't know much about that yet, but um, again, I'm just going to leave some space for silence for us to um, hold the people of Japan in our prayers. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, and comforting God, we come together on this chilly morning to worship you, to seek after you and to follow in your way. But we also come knowing that even as we carry on with our daily lives, people both nearby and across the globe are facing devastation and pain. So we lift up to you this morning the Bluffton University community as they grieve the loss of a friend and a classmate. May you comfort them in their grief and their time of loss. Oh God, you are our great comforter, and we also lift up to you the people of Japan in light of a great natural disaster that has devastated their, their nation. Pray for the people there, May rescue efforts and whatever work can be done to save as many people as possible be effective. And may we all reach out to them in support and care over the coming weeks. Remind us, O oh God, that even in the midst of tragedy, you are always present. As we enter into worship and our service this morning, O oh God, be present with us now. Open our ears and our hearts to your word. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.
worship this morning. Um, welcome back, everyone. It is sure good to have you back. And thank you for those of you who uh, filled up that big red box of Valentine's, homemade Valentine's for me. That was a very sweet gesture on your part. And for those who didn't send me a Valentine, next year you can get the opportunity. <laughs> Um, and thanks for those who built the wall out here to remind us not only of the literal wall that separates Palestinian and Israelis, uh, the checkpoints that they undergo daily that we're just experiencing a little bit this week. Uh, I've experienced it many times there in Palestine, but it also reminds us of not just that wall, but other walls around the world and, and walls between us and others. And uh, with God's help, may we learn to break those down as well. First, let me say what I won't be speaking about this morning. There was a bit of typo, I don't know if you got this, and it said that uh, from high school dropout to college president, well, I didn't drop out of high school, but that got you here. No, I'm kidding, I'll come to that. No, it was this part that said figuring out God. That was a huge task. I'm supposed to come and talk about, they, they left off the other part, but um, I'm not here to just simply try to figure out God for you, for you this morning. Actually, as far as that goes, however, um, I could simply have downloaded the Pocket God app for iPhone and have you play a game or two of that. I don't know if you know it, but if you play that, you get to play the role of the omnipotent being who rules over an island and controls everything. If you can't figure out God by playing Pocket God, then at least you might have a bit more empathy with God in trying to get you or me to do the right thing by God. What I would, my topic, uh, my topic isn't so much about figuring out God as Tamara suggested, uh, I mean as she corrected, but rather how to figure out God's will for our lives. The prophet Jeremiah at one point suggests that God might have a plan for our lives. He writes, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, if God had that, those plans for a nation state like Judah, perhaps God has such a plan for us as well. Or the psalmist who writes, I will instruct you and teach you the way to go. Sometimes in English, we say such things as, I will do this, or I'm going to perhaps do that, God willing. Or those of you who are in Egypt and have studied Arabic for the last couple years, you'll recognize this. In Arabic, it's inshallah, God willing. So how do, you go, how do we go about discerning God's will in making those important decisions for our lives? What major are we going to choose? What career, what is our calling? What is our marriage, who will our marriage partner be, if any? Or what grad school might we go to? Or what kind of life do we wish to live? Let me clear a bit of the debris around best practices in learning to know God's will for just a minute. There are several ways of dealing with this question of knowing God's will for our lives that I do not necessarily recommend. I would not, for example, recommend the hearsay approach to discerning God's will. Let us take care whenever 
we find ourselves saying things like, God told me to do this or that. God told me to marry her. God told me to buy this car. I always like that one. The problem as I see it with this approach is that so often it feels like God comes off like a ventriloquist dummy channeling our whims and our wishes. And it's also quite amazing for me to see how God seems to change God's mind whenever a new or different desire comes along. I knew someone once, literally so, who, who was sure that God told her to marry a kind and caring man. The only problem was he was already married. Oops. She ended up marrying him. So that tells that story. Another practice, I'm a bit suspicious, is what I'm calling roulette Bible. Close your eyes, flip through the Bible, make a random stop, whirl your finger around the page, and then plunk it down. Read the text under your finger. Now, some choices are made pretty easy if you make that approach. If the scripture under your finger is from Deuteronomy 14.21, let's say, that says, do not boil a lamb in its mother's milk. Well, I'm guessing for most of us, we could be pretty sure that we would be in God's perfect will for quite some time on that one. <laughs> but what about the time your finger lands on the verse that says, go to hell? <laughs> or, <laughs> not that there is a text like that, literally, but okay. <laughs> But what if it says something like, slay all the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites together with their camels and cattle and concubines? Then what? Well, you probably have to run to the telephone book right away and say, who are the Perizzites, for one thing, before you can figure out how to slay them? Well, because knowing God's will can be so elusive, others go to the opposite extreme of pure skepticism about ever figuring out God's will. Such a skeptic tends to simply forego any notion that God cares about our decisions one way or another. So she or he go it alone. Make a simply pragmatic decision without any reference to God's desire or God's will. This view was held by the ancient Stoics and oftentimes by modern Stoics as well. My hope this morning however, instead, is to offer what I'm thinking of, uh, I'll call four principles for global positioning your life. It's my recommendation that it's best to use all four principles at once, or as many as possible in the sort of GPS crossover vectoring uh, approach to discerning God's will. Some of you will recognize that I have renamed and adapted the principles laid out by John Wesley the founder of Methodist and Wesleyan churches in the 19th century. His followers called these four principles the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So let's start with the first ones. I'm calling it Scripture Alive. The psalmist said, and we sang this morning, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'm calling this Scripture Alive because it means reading the Bible or reading scripture, not as simply a dead old manuscript. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself said, this letter technically is a dead letter unless the Spirit of Christ makes it alive to us. So read it through the eyes and ears and spirit of the living Christ and see what happens. 
to make things a bit more simple and to uh, narrow it down for us just a bit, because that's a whole lot of uh, pages there to figure out, Jesus taught us that the whole Bible could be summed up in two Older Testament commandments, love God and love others. So at a minimum, given two choices in our lives, always choose the one that more closely aligns with the loving God, with loving God or loving others over the alternative choices that you might make. Reading scripture this way might not tell us whether to choose Notre Dame or over Indiana University for a college. It just might, however, give the green light for choosing Goshen College. <laughs> I, I'm, ki I'm kidding about that. Probably not that either, but I do know that when we cry out to the heavens, hey God, what should I do with my life? We shouldn't be surprised to hear back through the words of scripture, feed the hungry, help the poor, do justice, work for peace, care for God's creation, reap what you sow, study to show yourself approved unto God, love God, and love others as Jesus loved them. If you do that, you're off to a good start in doing God's will for your life. I've called the second principle for global positioning your life, ancestor wisdom. The Wesleyan quadrilateral calls it a capital T, with a capital T, tradition. Big time tradition. If I were to use that word today, that is tradition, I'd rather speak of this orienting principle in the plural and with a small t, traditions. There's more than one, there's quite a few. And if you notice, I put ancestor here, ancestor wisdom for me captures the sentiment better for me overall as long as you notice the quotes around ancestor. Because I'm not speaking so much here about biological ancestors, though that might be. I'm talking about all of those people associated with our lives over time and space. In other words, what do 2,000 years of customs and interpretations and understandings and wisdom of the church teach us about our decisions? What have our parents and grandparents taught us? How are our mentors or professors guiding us? When it comes to making important decisions, how does the wisdom of the community around us and a community that stretches far back in time weigh in on what our decision is or is not? The Quakers call this getting clearness. I like that. It almost sounds like you're about to take off somewhere. Mennonites call it the interpretive community. The Methodists called it tradition, as the Catholics call it, the uh, magisterium of the church. The community around us can often help us figure out God's will for our lives. I went to get a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern studies primarily because one professor here at Goshen College many years ago invited me to think about doing that, even though I was a biology and natural science major. I changed my mind and my heart was won out because of an ancestor, a mentor of mine. When I was wondering whether to marry Terry or not, I was a bit wishy-washy, shall we say, 
on the question of marrying her. And this was even after I had gone all the trouble of hawking everything I owned to buy her a little tiny diamond ring and to ask her to marry me. And I was having second thoughts. And I was going, oh, if only I had this awesome, unambiguous, unquestionable sign from God, then I would know I should marry her, for sure, for sure. If only I had more faith, I thought. And then I went to discuss this question with my good friend here at Goshen by the name of Chibu Ozor. He simply said to me, Jim, if you ask for a sign in light of all the evidence and, some, and support from those of us who love you and have uh, supported you and Terry and believe that you are meant for each other, then your faith is terribly weak indeed. So with some fear, and a little trembling, I went to the altar without that miraculous sign I was looking for, except the sign of support and guidance from those who knew and loved me. And they were right. I have no doubt that after 30 year, 30 plus years of marriage, we have been right smack dab in the middle of God's will on that life-changing hinge point of our history together. So sometimes we simply must trust the collective wisdom of the pilgrims of faith around us. Sometimes the wisdom of the broader community helps us consider choices we may never even have thought of making ourselves. That's how the decision to become president of Goshen College was for me. It was only after two search committees of two other colleges at two other earlier times in my life came to invite me to consider such a vocation that I ever even thought of such a calling. It wasn't even in my trajectory. The first time I was approached, I took the interview process rather flippantly. The second time, years later, I studied hard, I read a lot, I tried my best in the interviews, and I didn't get the job either. The third time I was asked, I withdrew my name, but was invited to reconsider, and the rest, as they say, is history. I ended up here at Goshen College. Trust the community around and trust the wisdom of the ancestors to tell you at times to help you discern, listen to what others are saying about you and your calling. The third principle of a global position in your life, I've named the seven, seven kinds of smarts. The Wesleyan quadrilateral version of this principle is simply called reason and focuses almost exclusively on uh, um, human rationality. That is, that which is most reasonable is what you should do. That way of thinking about it is too narrow in my mind, especially since the psychologist Howard Gardner pioneered the theory of multiple intelligences. Dr. Thomas Armstrong, a renowned educator, calls these multiple intelligences, and this is the phrase I'm borrowing from, seven kinds of smart. He says there's word smart, picture smart, music smart, body smart, logic smart, people smart, and self smart. My dad was a picture smart and a people smart kind of guy. He had an uncanny gift of empathy and compassion for others that connected a very image-driven dream life to reality. For example, he once dreamt of a woman in travail, weeping over her 
uh, over her child, her suffering daughter. The next morning, he called a mother in our church, and sure enough, by the way, my dad was a realtor, not a minister, <laughs> uh, a realtor given to mystic kinds of communion with God, something I never really had in the same way. He called up this mother in our church, and sure enough, she had been up all night trying to care for her 10-year-old daughter who was in great pain due to her gastric, her gastric bypass tube leaking. The little girl had surgery uh, a month or two before. Their mother was a wreck and needed that phone call. I could recount all kinds of stories about dad's picture and people smarts. If we're body smart, God may reveal God's will to us with an ache here or a pain there a warning to do more or less exercise, to eat healthier, to get more sleep, and so on. Others are music smart. A student in the Goshen College men's choir once told me he found deep meaning and divine guidance almost every time he sang the O Magnum Mysterium. If you haven't heard the men's choir sing O Magnum Mysterium, you're missing out on an encounter with the divine. Logic smart speaks for itself. Make your list, your pros and cons, gather the data, analyze your gifts, take into account your personality, your likes, your dislikes, your weaknesses, your strengths, trust your rational powers, your intuitive intelligence, your accumulated wisdom, and work it out to the best of your abilities. So trust in the multiple intelligences that God has given to each and every one of you. The fourth and final principle for global positioning your life is captured in the title to Parker Palmer's little book called Let Your Life Speak. He's a great Quaker educator known all over the world, but went through some very deep and depressive times in his life. And this little book I would invite all of you to read if you get a chance. And he talks about the need to come to terms with your own life. Listen to your life. Listen to what God has, is saying to you. You're unique. There's no one like you. Frederick Beekner puts it this way. He says, listen to your life. Let your life speak, Palmer says. In Wesley's quadrilateral, quadrilateral, this guiding principle is referred to as experience. A Christian might say it's the experience you accumulate when you do your best to follow Christ daily in life. If you do that, let your life speak. Learn to trust your own experience, your deepest sentiments, your reasoned judgments, even if you don't always get it right. Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, once wrote a prayer and he said, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end. The fact that I think I'm following your will doesn't mean that I am actually doing so but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. So trust God to honor your attempts, even if you may get it wrong sometimes. This principle is semi-prophetic in nature. It's the antidote to the ancestor wisdom quadrant, the communal discernment principle as well. It's an antidote to that. It keeps us from falling into a death spiral of inertia and group think. Martin Luther let his life speak in his bold assertion in the face of all the churchly detractors, here I stand, 
I can do no other. Sometimes you alone, under the urging of God's Spirit, know best what is best for you. Sometimes your conscience allows you to do nothing less than obey it. At the end of my 11th grade year of high school, I dropped out. You're waiting for that part of it, weren't you? I went to work full-time for Sears, Roebuck, and Company in the stockroom. That'll get you on the straight and narrow soon enough. I was a nearly straight-A student, quite popular up to that point, and it was, to say the least, shocking to my teachers. I was called Jimmy, even in high school, by the way. And my guidance counselor called me in and said, Jimmy, do you really want to do this? You're not going to get into any college. You're not going to be able to go on in your life. Surprisingly, my parents, it didn't seem to ruffle their feathers at all. One had an eighth grade education. The other had just made it through uh, high school. Our county, you see, we lived in very uh, tumultuous times while we were desegregating the school system, which was a wonderful thing that was happening on one level. But on another, for quite a few years there, it resulted in extremely dangerous and violent situations in our high school. Almost daily, riots broke out in the lunchroom and chairs were thrown and trays were uh, thrown back and forth. Forks and knives were being used as weapons. The police monitored our hallways and we were locked in our classrooms and spent much of the day frightened. In school of three grades with 1,200 students per grade, in the days before electronic screening was invented, it was like going to prison of sorts through your school life. None of us wished for this. All of us were burdened by it. And I couldn't take it. I just plain quit. Now, I did finish high school by going to high school for adults at night. Uh, I did that because I, well, I guess I was an adult. Uh, looking back, I listened to my life. And I did what I thought was best for me at the time against the detractors, and I would never let my son do it. <laughs> but, and I hope you never let your children do that either. All that to say is that sometimes God allows you to decide what's best for you, even if no one, other, no one else can quite understand. So finally, I could list other principles of, of, God's, of figuring out God's will for our life, but these, these four are well-worn and tested. They really predate the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I would say in the end that you'll simply have to take that leap of faith and as one clever person said, just do it. If you think about it, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul rarely, if ever, sat back and waited for God to give him instructions. God almost always seemed to interrupt Paul while he was hightailing it to some place or another. Paul, as Saul, was on a road to Damascus to persecute Christians when the light of God's lamp hit him full on and blinded him for a while. He became a believer there and then. Another time he was on his way to Bithynia in Asia Minor when God said, whoa, and sent him the opposite direction, to Macedonia instead. 
Someone once told me God is a God of interruptions. So I'm suggesting one method of applying these principles is simply to get up and start doing what you think God wants you to do. And then trust that God will show up through the various principles, perhaps above or others, and give us instructions if need be. IBM's chairman once said that the best way to mess up a problem is to do nothing. At least, he said, get up and do something. Turn the wheel and see which way it goes. Then you can make more decisions and fix it if you have to, if you're heading in the wrong direction. If you do nothing, nothing will get better. Just maybe God's waiting for us to take the first step into God's will for us. One thing my dad always said to me, and remember, this was a guy given to uh, sort of these kind of direct revelational experiences from God who told him what to do and what I always wanted and never got. But one thing he said to me, which I'll cherish forever, may he rest in peace. Jim, get up and do it. Nine times out of ten, when you look back, you will see that you set out on a journey that indeed was God's will for you. Wise counsel. Just do it. Trust that God, as the Apostle Paul said, is at work in you, inspiring both the will and the deed. Or as he says elsewhere, and I'll conclude with this, be confident of this, that the one God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, get up, just do it. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, uh, especially thanks for a provocative and helpful framework for considering how we discern God's will in our lives. As a response, prayer of response, I invite you to turn in your hymnal, the blue one, to number 725 in the back. 725. And then we will read that together. Let's pray together. God of guidance, quicken your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds so we may follow what is right. Give us direction so we may know which way to choose and which to refuse, which course to claim and which to reject, which action to take and which to avoid. Enlighten our minds purify our hearts, strengthen our wills, and lead us to live as faithful followers of Jesus all the days of our lives. Amen. And we will close with number 546 in the same book, Guide My Feet. And we invite you to stand to sing. Yeah. 